This morning's scripture reading will be taken from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and it reads, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to, to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to, the, to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the time or date <clears throat> the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After, after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking in, intently up into the sky as he was, as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. We want to continue the reading of, of Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives of Sabbath's day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field where he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us for the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. 
Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they drew lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. It's God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this great chapter out of this book that so instructs our mind about the way that we are to live as your people, even in this modern age, 2,000 years removed from this event that we've just read about. We recognize your greatness, Father, not only in the way that you have transformed us, but the greatness of your presence and strength and power that continues to intervene in this world. And to help this world, the people that live in it, to recognize the goodness that is in your presence, Father, and is a part of your very character in all of the universe. And so as we, we study these words this, this morning, Father, we always ask and pray so again this morning for eyes to see it and ears to hear it in order, Father, for all of these great truths to become a, a way that we think not only about you and ourselves, but about our life in this world. And to this end, we pray it all in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Today, as we've been talking over the last couple of weeks, we're going to begin a study of the book of Acts. And I, I'm not going to be going through this, this book. It's a, it's a pretty large book. But over the next two months, uh, we're going to be looking at it thematically. We're going to be more at about 5,000 feet than trying to go through it verse by verse by verse, which we did about five or six, seven years ago when we did our insight seminar on the book of Acts here at Mac. Uh, so I'm going to depend on, on you to be reading through this book as we go through this study and acquainting yourself with the words and the teachings and the events and the names and the places and all of the things that are going to be taking place. As I uh, attempt for us in trying to understand as we begin this new year the, uh, the work that we have before us, which is a work that we have every year as the book of Acts is always uh, in application to us as a church as we begin to understand a lot of these great themes that we find for the church and its mission in the book of Acts. Now, uh, before we jump into the book, just, just a word about the book of Acts. Every week we have lots of folk who come into our, our assemblies, come into this room with us, and even some of our brothers and sisters who work really hard to try to figure out what in the world we're talking about with all of these different books and all these different passages in the Bible. When we think about the New Testament, the New Testament is made up primarily of letters. These letters were written by uh, fellows like Paul and the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter. And they were written to places in the ancient world around the Mediterranean Sea. They were written to places like Thessalonica or Rome or Corinth, and they were written sometimes even to a person like Timothy, who is in Ephesus, or Titus, who is on the island of Crete. And these are very personal letters and letters that are written to the church at large, and these are basically letters that are helping to instruct those young men or those young churches what it meant to believe in Jesus and to live like Jesus and to follow Jesus as disciples of Jesus in the first century Mediterranean world. 
Now the other five books of the Bible that don't fit into the, the letters, and, uh, and I would throw Revelation in there as well as a letter to the church, even though it's a, a different kind of a genre uh, than the other letters. We have the five books that have a lot of history in them. We have the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we have the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of, of God becoming a man and living among us. And all of these Gospels are, are about showing us how, if God was a human being, how God would live. And to instruct our minds into what God is like and His promises and His character and, and his, his mystery and the greatness of His power. The Gospels teach us this is what God looks like as a man. The book of Acts continues that thread or that, that line of thinking and says this is what happens to the world when the people who live like that Jesus go ahead and live that life and do the will of God the way that he has expressed it to them explicitly in Scripture. This is what the church, this is what the disciples of Jesus look like when they live in the world. Now, all four of those Gospels, in one way or another, Matthew and Mark are the best known, but all four Gospels end with what we call the Great Commission. They also end with the death, burial, and resurrection. You have the death of Jesus on the cross. You have his burial three days later after his death. He is resurrected from the tomb. And that is the way, with the Great Commission going into the world and making disciples and Jesus ascending into heaven, that is the way that the Gospels end. The first 11 verses of Acts pick up that 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 thread, that line of thought. They begin with the resurrected Jesus in Jerusalem on a hill with his disciples talking to them before he ascends into heaven and they go across the Kidron Valley back into Jerusalem to that upper room where they had been staying. Now in the first chapter of Acts, we learn so, not so much what the church does. Throughout the rest of the 27 chapters of, of, of Acts, after that first chapter, the 28 and all, you, you get all of these different examples of how the church reacted and, and its ministry and, and how it responded to, to opportunities and how God was guiding it. It was about what the church does and how God continues to work, not only through his apostles, but through the, the very church, those disciples themselves. But the first chapter is really significant because it tells us a lot more about what the church is than what the church does. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, you have some information that helps you to understand, to make real our understanding of what happens in the next 27 chapters. So this morning, as we jump into this, this study of the book of Acts, there are three key ingredients in chapter 1 that I want us to see. It's a certain kind of people, there's a certain kind of a presence in the church, and there is a certain progression. So it's people and it's presence and it's progression. Now, let's begin with a certain kind of people. The people who first followed Jesus were called disciples. That was not a new term. It was not exclusive to Christianity. It was a term, as you know, that was used up until about the 11th chapter of the book of Acts where the, the Christians in Antioch or the disciples in Antioch for the first time were being called Christians. But up to that time, the followers of Jesus were called disciples. And during the years that Jesus was on earth, the people who followed him, not just in a casual way, but saw in Jesus the Messiah, in Jesus they saw 
the anointed one and the promised one, these people as disciples were dedicated to following in his footsteps. The point being, when the gospel of Jesus is believed in a life-altering way by a human being, that, gospel, that, that human cannot go back to life as usual. When somebody like you or me, even in our own modern age, when we believe the gospel as it was preached in our day, which was the way that it was preached in the first century, when we believe that in faith and dedicate our lives to the Christ and living as he lived, then we can't go back to life as normal. Disciples are people who are different because of their teacher, the one, their master, their Lord, who they follow. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 1, I think we find the heart of discipleship as, as Paul is writing to one of those churches, specifically the church in Ephesus, in the first century. In describing what it means to, to follow God, to follow the Christ, to live as a Christian, to live as a disciple, he says in the fifth chapter, first verse, be imitators of whom? God. So if somebody asks you, what is a disciple of Jesus in the church, what is it that they do? You say, what we're trying to do in our life is to live as if God was, 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 was present in the planet in human form like he was in Jesus. We imitate God. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, one of the questions that comes up from time to time, and I remember the first time that it came up in my own mind is we were, we were back in college in the university. We were taking the Bible classes and theology classes. One of the questions that kind of popped into my mind is, was this. If God is so powerful that he can create everything out of nothing, and he is able to do these miraculous things in the creation that grabs the attention of those people that are witnessing these things and, and, and drawing them out of the thinking of the fallen world for a moment just to see him in all of his character, all of his power, all of his righteousness, holiness, and love, then why in the world does God use people today? Why does God partner with with human beings, with human beings in the church, with disciples who are trying to live like Jesus but not doing so perfectly, why does he do that to get his work completed? Well, I think in discipleship, a lot of times there is a missed irony. Most of the time when we think about what a disciple is, especially a disciple of Jesus, a disciple of Christ, we think about all of the things that we have in common in terms of belief. We believe that he is the Son of God. We believe that he lived a perfect life without blemish, without sin. We believe that he did miraculous things. We believe that he died on the cross. We believe that that was a dead death, that he didn't just swoon, that he didn't just faint, that he was dead, dead, that he was put inside of a tomb. And on the third day after his death, he was resurrected from the dead. He showed himself for 40 days, as we read in the first chapter of Acts, giving many convincing proofs that he had indeed been resurrected. And then he ascended to heaven. There are so many things as disciples that we believe in common. But the one thing that we don't always talk about, which is something that we share, is that disciples of Jesus have come to an understanding that they share a, a, a degree, for some a deep, profound degree of brokenness with each other. We are sinners 
who have been saved by grace and turned into saints. Now this is where the irony sort of begins. Think about Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and the fall of man. You know the story. Here is Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything is great. The serpent shows up. There's the temptation, the eating of forbidden fruit. And then the thorns and the thistles enter into the curse of creation. And the thorns and the thistles get inside of human beings. We are sinners. Sin entered into the world. And because sin entered the world, so did death. But that story has a bit of a context, right? Genesis chapter 1, the creation of everything. God speaks on six days. Everything that he speaks comes true, comes into reality, comes to fruition. His word is powerful. And God, when he looks upon all of the stuff that he created, he says it is good. It is the way that he had imagined it in his mind. So in Genesis chapter 1, the word of God is a powerful word. Then we get to Genesis chapter 2. We have uh, some more detail about the creation of man, the creation of woman. We have the two of them becoming one flesh, all of that sort of thing. But there is also in Genesis chapter 2, there is a, a very significant phrase, and that is God says to the man and woman, you can eat anything. Everything that's in the garden you can eat except one tree. Stay away from that tree. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of, say it, good and evil, right? Then we get to Genesis chapter 3. Now before we get there, we have to think a little bit about Genesis 1 and 2. When you have a kid, and you provide everything that that kid needs to be able to flourish and to grow and to survive and to live and to, and to become an adult, you give it the love, you give it the food, you give it the shelter, you give it the clothing, you give it the education, you just give and give and give, and when it goes wrong, you correct it a little bit. Would you say, and, that, and that's the kind of environment that that kiddo grows up in and becomes an adult and becomes an astronaut, would you say that the environment that that kid grew up in was loving or hostile? It's loving, right? It's loving. And so by implication, when God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in it, creates the man and the woman, puts them in the middle of the garden, has all kinds of trees, has everything there for them to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion and all of these kinds of things, which is a way of saying to bring out the fertileness and the, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the gifts of a luxuriant earth so that they can become and be what it is that God has always wanted them to be, are you going to say that that is a loving or a hostile environment? It is a loving environment. By implication, that must mean that the one that created it is what? Loving. Thorns and thistles do not come until later, and they're part of the curse and part of the, the, the curse of disobedience. So now you get to Genesis chapter 3. We know the word is powerful. We also, through implication, know that God's word is good for human beings. The, to obey means to live. To be disobedient means what? To die. And then along comes this serpent. And the serpent tempts the human beings in such a way that the integrity of God is going to be destroyed. It begins with a bit of a sniff of disdain. Did God really say? And the woman thinks about it for a little bit, and they get into this, and the next thing you know, 
she's beginning to wonder whether or not God is truly loving, if God has all of her goods and, and benefits at the center of his thinking, the center of his heart. And she decides, no, God does not know what is best for me, and God does not have my best interest at heart. In fact, God's kind of holding me back a little bit because God knows if I eat of that fruit, according to the serpent, I'm going to become like God. And the thing that happens in the third chapter that we don't talk about enough is that she goes ahead and eats of that fruit, gives it to Adam, he eats it, and the worst thing in the world happens. Let down. They didn't become like a god. In fact, what happens is anything but enlightenment, anything but becoming like a god, what happens is she begins to shrink back and he begins to shrink back because their eyes are open and they see different things and, and all of a sudden the, 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 the nature of sin is revealed. In fact, the book of Hebrews, we'll talk about it a little bit later, that you know, for a season, you know, sin is great and pleasurable, but it always ends in death. Now you think about what it is that God is doing in the church. We're going to go at the speed of light from Genesis to Acts chapter 1. And you think about what it is that God is calling the church to do. The disciples of Jesus, people who have lived through a life-altering belief and faith in the gospel, the gospel being that power of salvation, also the reception of the Holy Spirit that helps him to become imitators of God or imitators of Jesus as disciples walking in his steps. This is where the irony is. Because of the way that we live, we are not impugning the greatness of God or the righteousness of God or the love of God like we find in Genesis chapter 3. God is calling human beings to build his reputation again in the world. That through the church, through his people, who are looking more and more and more through space and time, like the Christ, we are building people's curiosity about God. Now, it's just the opposite. People become less enamored and enamored and enamored with a world full of thorns and thistles. They become less enamored in a world that doesn't make sense, that, that doesn't seem to that doesn't seem to, to be helpful at times. It seems to be working against you. I mean, there's a reason why we have Mother Murphy, right? We talk about, you know, Murphy's Law and Mother Murphy, and if anything can go wrong, it will and does, and <laughs> goes wrong, right? Now, what God is doing in the church is pulling together people who have, through the power of the gospel, been radically revolutionized, not only in what they think is the true truth about the creation of the heavens and the earth and God and all of that, but are being inwardly transformed so profoundly that as it works its way out, it begins to change the way that they, they deal with people, that it's no longer looking out for number one, but you're learning how to love people the way that God loves people. That it's not about hoarding all, of you, can, all you can get, because nature's pretty bad and sometimes unpredictable. In fact, a lot of times very random that you don't know when you're going to need something or when it might be taken away, so you've got to hoard and hoard and hoard. But because we trust God and His promises, especially those about taking care of His people, we can be generous. And where people don't want to forgive, people in the church forgive. And you could go on and on and on. 
The irony is that, that the power of God is so great in the gospel that God is now using human beings to prove his integrity, his love, his goodness to that fallen world. And that's irony. And that's why you read in the church in Acts 8, for example, you have the church being scattered because of the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution that breaks out on the church on that day. And because of the persecution, they're scattering outside and they go from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And in Judea and Samaria, we come across in Luke's writings in Acts about one of the first deacons, a fellow by the name of Philip, who goes into Samaria. And because of the greatness of the gospel and how it has just transformed him and, and the truth of the resurrection and, and, and the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and all of that inside of him, he is, just, he is so full of awe and so full of, of wonder and so full of love because God is love that he can't help but talk about the things that he knows to be true that have changed him with all of those people, the persona non grata of the Mediterranean world, those Samaritans. And so what we hear about him doing is he's performing signs and people are listening. And people are listening and he's performing signs. And those signs are bringing a blessing to people. He's healing people that are lame. He's, he's taking care of their infirmities. He's, he's, he's healing those that are sick and so on and so forth. But not that. Those that are in this spiritual battle because of, of demons, he's, he's bringing them to their right mind and to their right place at the table. And we read four verses later from that that all of a sudden people began putting two and two together that the world is thus because thus we have made it and that now we have an opportunity to reconnect to the one who did not create it this way but is the one that is changing it and putting things to rights and we can find ourselves in his love and we read in Acts chapter 8 verse 8 there was great joy in that city. The church is flip-flopping the thorns and thistles for joy. And following that, and following that, we discover in the first chapter of Acts that it's not just about a certain kind of a, of a person that God is using in the church, a disciple of Jesus, but it's a certain kind of a presence. In, in Matthew's version of the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, beginning about verse 19, what is the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples? And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then in the Acts 1 version of the Great Commission, verse 8, Jesus says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'm not leaving, even though that looks like I might be abandoning you, I'm not. I'm just switching places. God the Son is going to ascend to the right hand of God. God the Spirit is going to ascend on you. And they leave the Mount of Olives. They go back to the upper room. First order of business, after they have been praying and praying and praying and praying, there's 120 of them at this point, plus uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. First order of the business, got to replace that rascal Judas. So what do they do? They say, okay, we need to start accepting resumes. We need to start an interview process. We need to start checking and vetting, you know, the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, what do you call the person that, uh, character references. We've got to start vetting the character references to make sure that the guy that replaces Judas is not going to allow this thing to happen again. 
That's not what happened. From the very beginning, there was this unmistakable acceptance of and reliance on the presence of God. Even with something like replacing Judas, they were already believing when Jesus said, Surely I am with you. They believed it when he said, God the Spirit is coming on you. And they were listening to God's word, primarily in this particular case from the Psalms, when God's word said to them, may another take his place of leadership. And that's why in the end there was prayer. Asking God, what's next? And that's why you read throughout, and we're going to, in fact, this is going to be one of the themes that we're going to talk about in this book, This is why there is this constant prayer that just permeates everything that the early church did. But not only that, think about the the, the fact that that they were courageous in these overwhelming odds that were against them from a humanly standpoint. They were courageous to take their stand and to even die for the cross, to die for the gospel, to die for God, to die for the Christ. It was because of this tremendous courage that was generated by the knowledge, the, 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 the truth, the fact that God was with them. Right in the very middle. I've told you the story about growing up in junior high, right? And there was a kid that just annoyed everyone, even the teachers and the faculty, to tears just about. And one day, you know, he was the most hated kid in our junior high class. Every class has one. And one day he crossed the line. He decided that he had had enough of this girl teasing him, so he hit her. Well, there were some fellas in the seventh grade that were just looking for the go sign. And so I remember with my friend walking out, and all of a sudden there is this crowd that just like a herd of cattle, is a stampede running across the playing field, and every kid in the seventh grade was chasing Richard to his house. And Richard is running, and, and you know, I, I've never been in a fight in my life, but I'm not going to say that I didn't like a display of pugilism every once in a while. And so my friend and I looked at each other. We're seventh graders, pretty immature, but we don't want to miss this. So we go tailing after everybody. We get up to where he lived. Turns out he lives right across the street from my friend. And so we're on my friend's front porch watching all of this. You've got like 100 kids out in front of this kid's house screaming. I mean, Richard just made it in the nick of time into the house, shut the door, locked it. And these kids are out on the front lawn yelling at him to come out. They wanted to beat him up. You're not going to hit one of our girls. And you, you know how that goes. Not a whole lot of reason, just a lot of action. It's, it's middle school, right? It's, it, this goes on for like 10 minutes. Next thing you know, car comes screaming around the corner, comes flying up to the top uh, of, of the street where everybody can see it, and it's just, it's just moving fast. And some kid goes, it's Richard's old man. And they begin to scatter, except for a handful. And, and the car comes screeching to a halt. There's smoke everywhere from the tires. And the old man jumps out, and he wants to know what's happening. Well, they, they kind of tell him what had happened that day at school. He goes into the house. And the only way that Richard was going to come out and face what he had to face was because of the presence of his father. I'm standing there as his seventh grade punk and thinking that is the power of a father you will stand up to anything especially the dangerous and the threatening and the possibility of pain if you believe in a tangible way that your father 
is with you. And that's why the church was a movement into the entire world that was hostile to it. Because of the presence of God that it recognized as its greatest truth, at its core, it was a movement led in heaven. And then the last thing, and we'll be done. There was this breathtaking progression. I uh, have marveled in, in a degree of awe at the, the opening chapter of Acts for a lot of years. Jesus says, this, this, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the disciples say, okay. Just a few of them. And the earth is big. He says, to the ends of the earth. And they say, that's fine with us. Whatever it takes, whatever you say. You know, you can't help but think about the failure of the people of Israel to enter the promised land in the Old Testament. They had seen there in Exodus the great power of God in the ten plagues. They had seen His great provision of water and food in the desert. There was this great presence of God as they moved through the desert, revealing Himself all the time, talking to Moses. And whenever He talked to Moses, Moses was never the same. Just always had this, this light about Him and this glow about Him. But in the end, even with all of that, the humans say, you know what? God is saying the truth. He's speaking the truth about what we find in the land that flows with milk and honey. We just don't believe that God... We just don't believe that God can do it. Even with God's presence, it can't be done. And so they wander around for 40 years before the second chance. Now in Acts chapter 1, you've got 120 disciples in Jerusalem. The promise of God's presence in everything and the mind-blowing command to take the gospel into all of the world. And they say, sure, why not? Toward the end of the book, Paul has traveled all the way to Macedonia and gets to Thessalonica. And things get a little dicey in Thessalonica for the disciples. In verse 6, in the old King Jimmy, the King James, those that are upset and those in that town that are against the kingdom and against these, these missionaries, Paul, they say, you know what? The men that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. When's the last time you heard of the church being described as a movement that turns the world upside down? Martin Luther King uh, taught me in a very practical way through his writings and, and, and the reading of his life that the church is the most powerful community on the planet and what he believed is that disciples of jesus living as jesus and and with a with a message can actually change not only a society but can change history and he was right men are created equal men are created in the image of god not long ago, I told you the story uh, that has come out of the North Richland Hills Church of Christ. They have, for, for many years, 
really tried to be a light in the community of North Richland Hills, Texas, just north of Fort Worth. For a lot of years, they have just done all kinds of ministry, working with people, teaching people, counseling people, loving people. You, you just name it. They're, they're trying to make inroads into that community. And about five years ago, the, uh, the North Richland Hills Police Department, some representatives showed up at the offices of that church, and they wanted to talk to their preacher, and they had their, their opportunity to spend some time with him. And uh, they said, we don't really have um, an answer to something that's going on in our community. And it's a good thing, but we don't seem to have an answer for it that's sort of empirical. But what we have seen is that the presence of domestic violence in this community has, has plummeted over the last couple of years. And as we put our thinkers into action about it and scratch our heads, the only answer that we can come up with is that the ministry and the work and the presence of this church is the reason why domestic violence in our families have plummeted over the last couple of years. Church is a movement of God in the community that in which it exists. And it is so powerful that God uses that community of disciples not just to, 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 to be light and salt in that community, but even in the region around it. And finally, the things that happen in that church begin to affect people in other continents in far-flung places like Zimbabwe or Swaziland or Argentina or Brazil or Poland or Australia, that great continent. And that's what it means to be a church. To be a movement of God for the blessing of the world and the glory of God as that world that was created by him begins to recognize all over again their dependence and reliance and very existence on his truth. That's what we're going to be looking at in Acts is how we replicate that, what happened in that first century in the 21st with a group of people like this. San Antonio, all the way to the ends of the earth. Uh, much of that we are already doing. But there is so much more that we could be doing to bless this community and the people around us and the people that live in the same streets that we do. And so much more that we could be doing. That's be that certain kind of people. And that's recognize that certain kind of presence that is at the core of our being, that is nowhere else in any other secular, secular entity in the world, and, and experience that breathtaking progress as the gospel is taken and turns the world, the very world, upside down. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. There may be some ways that we can minister to you right now in this place. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. If there are ways that we can help you take care of God's business in your life, then come down to the front and talk to these men as we stand and praise God.